1: Welcome back to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm your host and curator, Marco Palmieri, and with me is my outstanding co-host, Michael Coulter. Ah, uh, Thank you for that wonderful intro, Marco. I'm happy to be here. So last time we were together, Michael, we'd just been creeped out by part one of Molly Tanzer's Lovecraftian horror story, The Infernal History of the Ivy Bridge Twins.
2: Do you want to do a quick recap of that for us? Of course. So in part one, we were introduced to the Calapash family, including their weird offspring twins, Basil and Rosemary.
1: So without further ado, let's start part two of The Infernal History of the Ivorybridge Twins, written by Molly Tanzer and narrated by Anna Clemens,
3: Containing more of the terrible wickedness of Mr. Villain, a record of the circumstances surrounding the unhappy separation of the Ivy Bridge Twins, how Rosemary became Mrs. Villain, concluding with the arrival of a curious visitor to Calipash Manor and the results of his unexpected intrusion. Mr. Villain's pursuit of the Lady Calipash had lasted for as many years as Rosemary remained a child, but when the blood in her girl's veins began to quicken and wrought those womanly changes upon her youthful body, so pleasing to the male eye, Mr. Villain found his lascivious dreams to be newly occupied with daughter rather than mother. Since the time, earlier in the year, when Rosemary had finally been allowed to dress her hair and wear long skirts, Mr. Villaine started paying her the sort of little compliments that he assumed a young lady might find pleasing. Little did he imagine that Rosemary thought him elderly, something less than handsome, a dreary conversationalist, and one whose manners were not those of a true gentleman. Thus, when he watched the virginal object of his affection sullied enthusiastically by her ithyphallic brother, the indecent tableau came as substantial shock to Mr. Villain's mind. The following day found Mr. Villain in a state of unwellness, plagued by a fever and chills, but he appeared again the morning after that. The infernal twins inquired kindly of his health, and Mr. Villain gave them a warm smile and assured them as to his feeling much better. He was, indeed, so very hale that he should like to give them their birthday presents, a day or so late, but no matter, if they might be compelled to attend him after breakfast. The twins agreed eagerly. Both loved presents, and mid-morning found the threesome in Mr. Villain's private study, formerly that of St. John Fitzroy, Lord Calipash. "'Children,' said he, "'I bequeath unto you two priceless antiques,' but unlike most of the gifts I have given you over the years, what is for one is not to be used by the other. Rosemary, to you I give these, a set of tortoiseshell combs carved into the likeness of Bubastus. To Basil, this bit of ivory. Careful with it, my dearest boy, it was the instrument of your father's undoing. Basil, surprised, took the handkerchief-swaddled object, and saw it was the carven head of a young man, crowned with a wreath of laurel leaves. As Rosemary cooed over her gift and vowed to wear the combs in her hair every day thereafter, Basil looked up at his tutor inquisitively. How... what? he asked, too surprised to speak more intelligently. The idol's head was given to me by a youth of remarkable beauty whilst I was abroad in Greece said Mr. Villain. I have never touched it. The young man said that one day I should encounter the one for whom it was truly intended, the new earthly manifestation of the ancient god which it represents, and that I must give it to him and him alone. Given your abilities, Basil, I believe you are that manifestation. I made the mistake of showing it to your father, and he coveted it from the moment he saw it but when he touched the effigy, I believe the god drove him mad to punish him. I have never told you this, but your father took his own life, likely for the heinous crime of... of besmirching that which was always intended for other, wiser hands. Basil clutched the fetish and nodded his deep thanks too moved by Mr. Villain's words to notice the agitated tone in which the last sentiment was expressed. That he was the embodiment of a deity came as little surprise to Basil. From an early age he had sensed he was destined for greatness, but he found it curious that Mr. Villain should have failed to tell him this until now. The ivory figurine occupied his thoughts all during the day, and late that same night, After a few hours spent in his sister's chambers, during which time they successfully collaborated on a matter of urgent business, Basil unwrapped the icon and touched it with his fingertips. To his great frustration, nothing at all happened, not even after he held it in his palm for a full quarter of an hour. Bitterly disappointed, Basil went unhappily to bed, only to experience strange dreams during the night. He saw a city of grand marble edifices, fathoms below the surface of the sea and immemorially ancient, and he saw that it was peopled by a shining, dolphin-headed race, whose only profession seemed to be conducting the hierophantic rites of a radiant god. He walked unseen among those people, and touched with his hands the columns of the temple which housed the god, carved richly with scenes of worship a voice called to him over and over in the language he had known since his birth, and he walked into the interior of the fane to see the god for himself, only to realize the face was already known to him, for it was the exact likeness of the ivory idol. Then the eyes of the god, though wrought of a glowing stone, seemed to turn in their sockets and meet his gaze. And with that look, Basil understood many things beyond human comprehension that both terrified and delighted him. The future Lord Calipash awoke the next morning bleary-eyed and stupid, to the alarm of both his sister and mother. He was irritable and shrewish when interrogated as to the nature of his indisposition, and his condition did not improve the following day, nor the following for his sleep was every night disturbed by his seeking that which called to him. He would not speak to anybody of his troubles, and when his ill-humour still persisted after a week, Rosemary and Lady Callipash agreed on the prudence of summoning the doctor to attend the future lord. Basil, however, turned away the physician, claiming that he was merely tired and, annoyed, left to take a long walk in the woods that comprised a large part of the Calipash estate. Let it be noted here that it was Mr. Vilaine who suggested that Basil's room be searched in his absence. There, to the family's collective horror, a ball of opium and a pipe were discovered among Basil's personal effects. The doctor was quite alarmed by this, for, he said, while tincture of opium is a well-regarded remedy, Smoking it in its raw state was a foul practice, only undertaken by degenerates and Orientals, and so it was decided that Basil should be confined to his room for as long as it took to rid him of the habit. Upon the lad's return there was a sort of ambush, comprised of stern words from the doctor, disappointed headshakes from Mr. Villain, tears from Lady Calipash, and, for Rosemary's part, anger. She was, frankly, rather hurt that he hadn't invited her to partake of the drug. Basil insisted he had no knowledge of how the paraphernalia came to be in his room, but no rational person would much heed the ravings of an opium addict, and so he was locked in and all his meals were sent up to his room. A week later, Basil was not to be found within his chambers, and a note in his own hand lay upon his unmade bed. His maid found it, but, being illiterate, she gave it over to Lady Callipash, while the lady and her daughter were just sitting down to table. Scanning the missive brought on such a fit of histrionics in Lady Callipash that Mr. Villain came down to see what was the matter. He could not get any sense out of the lady, and Rosemary had quit the breakfasting room before he even arrived, too private a creature to show anyone the depth of her distress.' so Mr. Villain snatched the letter away from the wailing Lady Calipash and read it himself. He was as alarmed by its contents as she, for it said only that Basil had found his confinement intolerable and had left home to seek his fortune apart from those who would keep him imprisoned. The author has heard it said that certain birds, like the canary or the nightingale, cannot sing without their mate and suffer a decline when isolated. Similarly, Upon Basil's unexpected flight from Calipash Manor did Rosemary enter a period of great melancholy where no one and nothing could lift her spirits. She could not account for Basil's behaviour, not his moodiness, nor his failure to take her with him, and so she believed him cross with her for her part in his quarantine, or worse still, indifferent to her entirely. Seasons passed without her smiling over the misfortunes of others or raising up a single spirit of the damned to haunt the living, and so, upon the year's anniversary of Basil's absence, Mr. Villain sat down with Lady Callipash and made a proposal. My lady, he said, Rosemary has grown to a pretty age, and I believe her state of mind would be much improved by matrimony and, God willing, motherhood. To this end, I appeal to you to allow me to marry her, whereupon I shall endeavour to provide for her as the most doting of husbands. Lady Callipash was at first disturbed by this request, as she had long assumed that Mr. Villain's affections were settled upon her, and not her daughter. But when Mr. Villain mentioned offhandedly that, with Basil absent, he was the only known male heir to the Callipash estate— and should he marry outside the family, neither Lady Calipash nor Rosemary would have any claim to the land or money beyond their annuities, the lady found it prudent to accept Mr. Villain's suit on Rosemary's behalf. Mr. Villain expected and, it must be admitted, rather ghoulishly anticipated Rosemary's disinclination to form such an alliance, but, to the surprise of all, She accepted her fate with a degree of insouciance that might have worried a mother less invested in her own continued state of affluence. Without a single flicker of interest, Rosemary agreed to the union, took the requisite journey into town to buy her wedding clothes, said her vows, and laid down upon the marriage-bed in order that Mr. Villaine could defile her body with all manner of terrible perversions— A description of which will not be found in these pages, lest it inspire others to sink to such depths. The author will only say that Rosemary found herself subjected to iterations of Mr. Villain's profane attentions every night thereafter. If any good came out of these acts of wickedness performed upon her person, it was that it roused her out of her dysthymia and inspired her to once again care about her situation. Not unexpectedly, Rosemary's emotional rejuvenation compelled her to journey down paths more corrupt than any the twins had yet trod. Her nightly, nightmarish trysts with Mr. Villain had driven her slightly mad, as well as made her violently aware that not all lovers are interested in their partner's pleasure. Remembering with fondness those occasions when her brother had conjured up from the depths of her body, all manner of rapturous sensations, in her deep misery, Rosemary concocted a theory drawn as much from her own experience as from the works of the ancient physician Galen of Pergamon. As she accurately recalled, Galen had claimed that male and female reproductive systems are perfect inversions of one another, and thus, she deduced, the ecstasy she felt whilst coupling with her brother was likely due to their being twins— and the mirror image of one another. To once again achieve satisfactory companionship, Rosemary therefore resolved upon creating a companion for herself out of the remains housed in the Calipash family crypt. By means of the necromancies learned in her youth, she stitched together a pleasure golem made of the best preserved parts of her ancestors, thanking whatever foul gods she was accustomed to petitioning for the unusually jellied temperature of that tomb. Taking a nose that looked like Basil's from this corpse, a pair of hands from that one, and her father's genitalia, she neatly managed the feet, and, dressing the creature in Basil's clothing, slipped often into that frigid darkness to lie with it. Sadly, her newfound happiness with her Azat's brother was, for two reasons, imperfect. The first was that none of the vocal cords she could obtain were capable of reproducing Basil's distinctively nasal snarl, and thus the doppelganger remained mute, lest an unfamiliar moan ruin Rosemary's obscene delights. The second trouble was more pernicious. She realized, too late, she had been unable to entirely excise the putrefaction wrought by death upon the limbs of her relations, and thus she contracted a form of gangrene that began to slowly rot her once-pristine limbs. For another year did this unhappy status quo persist, until one dreary afternoon when Rosemary, returning from a long walk about the grounds, noticed a disreputable, slouching individual taking in the fine prospect offered by the approach to Calipash Manor. Unafraid, Rosemary advanced on him, noticing the burliness of the man's figure, the darkness of his skin, and the shabby state of his long overcoat. "'Are you in want of something?' she called to the stranger, and he looked up at her, his face shaded by a mildewing tricorn. "'There is scant comfort to be found here at Calipash Manor, but if you require anything it will be given to you.' "'To whom do I have the pleasure of speaking?' queried he, in the rasping accent of a white Creole, all the while stealing polite glances of her slightly moldy countenance. I am the daughter of the lady of this house, answered Rosemary. Then thank you, my lady, said the man. My name is Valentine, and I have only just returned from Jamaica to find my family dead and my house occupied by those with no obligation to provide for me. Have you no friends? None, not being the sort of man who either makes or keeps them easily. Come with me then, said Rosemary, admiring his honesty. She led Valentine up to the house and settled them in her private parlour, whereupon she bid the servants bring him meat and drink as he ate, he seemed to revive. Rosemary saw a nasty flicker in his eyes that she quite liked, and bid him tell her more of himself. He laughed dryly, and Rosemary had his tale. "'I'm afraid, lady, that I owe you an apology, for I know one so fine as yourself would never let me into such a house, knowing my true history.' I was born into the world nothing more than the seventh son of a drunk carter, and we were always in want, as there was never enough work to be had for all of us. I killed my own brother over a bite of mutton, but given that we were all starving, the magistrate saw it fitting that I should not be hanged, but impressed to work as a common hand aboard a naval ship bound for the West Indies. I won't distress you by relating the conditions I endured. Suffice it to say, I survived. When I arrived at our destination, however, I found that it was not my fate to remain in the Navy, for my sea captain promptly clapped me in irons and sold me as a white slave, likely due to my being an indifferent sailor, and more likely to start riots among the men than help to settle them. I was bought by a plantation owner who went by the name of Thistlewood, and this man got what labor he could out of me for several years, until I managed to escape to Port Royal with only the clothes on my back and a bit of food I'd stolen. There I lived in a manner I shan't alarm you by describing and only say that having done one murder— It was easy to repeat the crime for hire until I had enough coin to buy passage back to England. But as I said earlier, when I returned home, I found every living person known to me dead or gone, except those with long memories who recalled enough of my character to kick me away from their doorsteps like a dog. Rosemary could not but be profoundly moved by such a tale, and she felt her dormant heart begin to warm anew with sympathy for this stranger. She assured him that he should have some work on her estate, and Valentine was so overcome that he took Rosemary's hand in his. But their mutual felicity was interrupted by Mr. Villain, who chose that inopportune moment to enter Rosemary's chambers uninvited. "'What is the meaning of this treachery?' cried Mr. Villain, for though he often engaged in infidelities, the notion that his bride might do the same did not sit well with him, being that he was a jealous man by nature. Release my wife, foul vagabond. Wife? exclaimed Valentine, his yellowish complexion turning grey. How is it that I return home only to find myself betrayed by one whom I thought harboured love for me? It would be impossible to guess whether Rosemary or Mr. Villain was more confused by this ejaculation, but neither had time to linger in a state of wonder for very long. The man withdrew a veritable cannon of a flintlock and cast off his wretched threadbare overcoat to reveal that beneath it he wore a rich emerald-green brocade vest threaded through with designs wrought in gold and silver, and his breeches were of the finest satin. When he looked down his nose at them, like a lord instead of lowering his eyes like a cotter's son, they saw he had all the bearing of a gentleman of high rank. Recognising him at last, Rosemary shrieked, and Mr. Villain paled and took a step back. Though strangely altered by time, the man was unmistakably Basil Vincent, Lord Calipash returned at last to reclaim by force what should have been his by right of birth.
2: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing
3: near his feet.
2: As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however
3: you listen to podcasts. Chapter 4 The Conclusion Detailing the reunion of the Ivy Bridge twins an account of the singular manner in which Rosemary defeated the gangrene that threatened her continued good health, what the author hopes the reader will take away from this infernal history. You! cried Mr. Villain in alarm. How dare you? How can you? They said the Navy would keep you at least a decade in the service of this country. They? demanded Rosemary. Who? the press gang, blustered Mr. Villain. For the sum I paid them, I'll have them. But the infernal twins never discovered what Mr. Villain's intentions were regarding the unsatisfactory press gang, for Rosemary, overcome with grief and rage, snatched the flintlock pistol out of Basil's grasp and shot Mr. Villain through the throat. A fountain of blood gushed forth from just above Mr. Villain's cravat pin, soaking his waistcoat and then the carpet, as he gasped his surprise and fell down dead upon the ground. Basil, she said. Basil, I'm so... I didn't... You married him? It was all Mother's doing, said Rosemary, rather hurt by his tone. But you were gone, she snapped. And lest Mr. Villain marry some common slut and turn Mother and myself out of our house even with such reasonable excuses, it was some time before Rosemary could adequately cajole Basil out of his peevish humour. Indeed, only when Rosemary asked if Basil had lived as a monk during the years of their estrangement did he glower at her, as he had used to do, and embraced her. They sat companionably together then, and Basil gave her a truer account of his absence from Calipash Manor. The carven ivory head which our loathsome former tutor bequeathed unto me on the fifteenth anniversary of my birth was the instrument, strangely, of both my undoing and my salvation, said Basil. Mr. Vilaine lied to me that I was the manifestation of the old God which it represents. Indeed, I believe now that his intention was to take me away from you so that he might have you for his own, that I, like my father before me, would be driven to suicide by the whispered secrets of that divine entity. Little did he know that while I am not some sort of fleshly incarnation of that deity, I was born with the capacity to understand his whispered will and walk along the sacred paths that were more often trod when his worship was better known to our race. I believe once Mr. Vilaine saw that I was only mildly troubled by these new visions, he concocted a plot to be rid of me in a less arcane manner. The night before you discovered my absence, he let himself into my chambers and put a spell upon me while I slept that made me subject to his diabolical will. I awoke a prisoner of his desire, and he bade me rise and do as he wished. Dearest sister, I tell you now that you did not detect a forgery in my note, for it was written by none other than myself. After I had penned the false missive, Mr. Villain bade me follow him down to Ivy Bridge, whereupon he put a pint of ale before me, and compelled me, via his fell hold upon me, to act in the manner of a drunken commoner, brawling with the local boys until the constable was called and I was thrown in jail. Not recognising me, due to my long isolation, my sentence was, as I told you, that of forced conscription into the Navy.' To a certain point, my tale as I told it to you, whilst in the character of the scoundrel Valentine, was true. I suffered much on my voyage to Jamaica, and was subsequently sold as a slave. What I did not tell you was the astonishing manner of my escape from that abominable plantation. My master hated me, likely because he instinctively sensed his inferiority to my person. My manners mark me as a noble individual, even when clad in rags and being that he was a low sort who was considered a gentleman due to his profession rather than his birth, my master gave to me the most dangerous and disgusting tasks. One of his favourite degradations was to station me at the small dock where the little coracles were tied up, so that I could be given the catches of fish to clean them, constantly subjected to wasp stings and cuts and other indignities of that sort. Yet it was this task that liberated me. For one afternoon, I arrived at the dock to see the fishermen in a tizzy, as one had the good fortune of catching a dolphin. The creature was still alive, incredibly, and I heard its voice in my mind as clearly as I heard their celebration. Save me, and I shall save you, it said unto me in that language that has always marked me as backant to the god of which I earlier spoke. I picked up a large stick to use as a cudgel and beat the fisherfolk away from their catch, telling them to get back to work, as the cetacean was of no use to our master, little did he know that while I am not some sort of fleshly incarnation of that deity, I was born with the capacity to understand his whispered will and walk along the sacred paths that were more often trod when his worship was better known to our race. They heeded me, for they were a little afraid of me, Often, as you might imagine, dear sister, bad things would happen to those who chose to cross me in some way. And I heaved the dolphin back into the sea. At first, I thought it swam away, and that it had merely been sun madness that had earlier made me hear its voice, but then, after the fisherman had paddled out of sight, the dolphin surfaced with a bulging leather satchel clutched in its beak. It contained gold and jewels that my new friend told me were gathered from shipwrecks on the ocean floor, and that I should use this wealth to outfit myself as a gentleman and buy passage back to England. The creature's only caveat was that upon my arrival I must once again visit the sea, and return to one of its kin, the ivory head, as our tutor had not, as it turns out, been given the object, Rather, it seems that Mr. Villain defiled an ancient holy place near Delphi during his travels in Greece by stealing the artifact away from its proper alcove. I agreed to these terms, and after waiting at the docks for a little longer so I might poison the fish it was my duty to clean, and thus enact a paltry revenge upon my tyrannical master, hastened back to Devonshire, as I knew nothing of your situation but feared much. Upon returning home, I assumed the persona of Valentine as a way of ascertaining if, in my absence, your sentiments had changed toward your long-absent brother and the manner in which we were accustomed to living with one another. Seeing your heart go out to such a pickeroon assured me of your constancy, and I regret very much that I earlier so impugned your honour. But, sister now that you know of my distresses, you must tell me of yours. Pray, how did you come to be married to Mr. Vilaine, and so afflicted by the disease that I see nibbles away at your perfect flesh? Rosemary then recounted what has already been recorded here, and she and Basil resolved upon a course of action that shall comprise the denouement of this chronicle. Both were determined that the gangrenous affliction should not claim Rosemary— but until Lady Callipash, wondering why her daughter did not come down to dinner, intruded into the parlour where the siblings colluded, they could not see how. The idea occurred to the twins when Lady Callipash's alarm at seeing Mr. Vilaine's corpse upon the carpet was so tremendous that she began to scream. Basil, fearing they should be overheard and the murder discovered before they had concocted an adequate reason for his unfortunate death, Caught Lady Callipash by the neck when she would not calm herself. As he wrapped his fingers about her throat, Basil noticed the softness of his mother's skin and, looking deeply into her fearful eyes, saw that she was still a handsome creature of not five and thirty. Sister, he began. But Rosemary had already anticipated his mind and agreed that she should immediately switch her consciousness with Lady Calapash's by means of witchcraft she and Basil had long ago learned, and once utilised in their youthful love-making, from the donkey-headed eel creature they had conjured, and henceforth inhabit her own mother's skin. This was done directly, and after securely locking Rosemary's former body, now occupied by their terrified mother— Into the family crypt, along with Mr. Verlaine's corpse, mother and prodigal son, rather than brother and sister, had the carriage made ready, and they drove to the head of the river Plym, whereupon Basil summoned one of the aquatic priests of his god, and handed over the relic that has figured so prominently in their narrative. To conclude, the author hopes that readers of this history will find this account entirely mortifying and disgusting. And seek to avoid modelling any part of his or her behaviour upon that of the infernal Ivybridge twins, though, to be fair, it must be recorded that, for all the duration of their cacodemoniacal lives, the twins preserved the tenderest affection for each other. Still, there has never been found anywhere in the world a less worthy man or woman than they, and, until the moonless night when the twins decided to join the ranks of the Cretaceous worshippers of their unholy deity, Lord Calipash being called Fence, his sister long missing her former amphibious wanderings, there was not a neighbor, a tenant, or a servant who did not rue the day they came into the company of Basil and Rosemary.
1: Weird, horrifying, and gash. <laughs> Those are the words I use to describe this story, and I love every line of it.
2: I don't even know where to begin with this one. That took me for a ride. I was not expecting.
1: Yeah, and you know, the Kalapash family appears in other Molly Tanzer stories, too. In fact, we'll have another of those stories in a future episode of the show, A Spotted Trouble at Delor on the Downs. So you don't want to miss that either.
2: Ooh, more Adventures of the Kalapash Family. Sign me up.
1: Well, this has been a wild ride. Thank you for joining me on this creepy little adventure, Michael. I hope you'll be back again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks for having
2: me on, Marco. It's been a wonderful ride co-hosting with you.
1: Thanks for saying that. It's been great having you on. And if you like our podcast, please consider dropping a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and join us again for our next episode when we'll be reminded what's truly important when the world is coming to an end. Until then, pleasant nightmares.
0: You are listening to stories to keep you up at night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, episode 15, features The Infernal History of the Ivy Bridge Twins, part two, by Molly Tanzer. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolihi. Associate produced by Alexis Latchaw. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Michael Coulter. Performed by Anna Clements. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith and Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.